Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast dedicated to talking shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. Now, the word optimization is a big buzzword in our industry. However, it means different things to different disciplines. It could be the fastest drill times, most BOE per foot, best IP, cleanest uh, production, best and biggest frack in the basin. It could also mean most efficient and effective facies evaluation. Regardless of discipline, optimization means this to everyone. Faster, bigger, longer, stronger. Today's influencer will be discussing the ultimate form of optimization. Techniques specifically designed to move that last stubborn bit of oil and revitalize the reservoir. So y'all, I have just one question. EOR, you ready to get into some enhanced recovery? Elio Dean, thanks for joining the Crude Audacity today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Is this your first podcast? My first podcast. (laughs) First time. Well... Just a full disclaimer, Elio is actually my boss and got me started in interdisciplinary uh, matrix reservoir evaluations back when I was a grad student. So I'm very excited to grill him with questions today. Bring it on. (laughs) But uh, in all honesty, you have a rather unique story. So you really carved out a niche in enhanced recovery, which is something that most people are not able to do. We're typically just the petroleum engineer who falls into production or falls into reservoir and there's nothing truly unique about how we interact versus another operator but you were able to find this niche so take us back to the beginning how did you get started in oil what actually made you realize that you wanted to take the route of petroleum engineer and how have you uh, or how have your uh, decisions along the way helped shape you into the opportunities you have today Okay, good question. Um, <laughs> we it's always want, tough to... We want all the detail. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, let's, let's go back to my childhood. Okay, fabulous. No, uh, I'm not sure how far back I'll go. Uh, I'll go back to when I was in college. Uh, just my background, I was actually attending uh, BYU in Utah, and uh, I eventually transferred to Colorado School of Mines here in, in Golden, Colorado. And uh, the transfer was actually because of your question. Hmm. And... I remember, so my father's in the oil industry, and my brother and I were both in college around the same time, and we both had fantasies or ideas of being in the oil industry. And I remember going to college and talking to my father, who's a geologist, geophysicist, and he's, he's uh, had quite a bit of uh, success in South America. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's had good days. I remember talking to him and telling him that I was going to go into geology. <laughs> At the, at the university, and that would be my major. He What he said afterwards was kind of interesting, which has totally been the focus of what I have done. Uh, what he pretty much said was that he would not recommend me going into geology. So apologies, Why? apologies to anyone <laughs> who's a geologist. Uh, but my father, who is a geologist, what he said was it was his day and age in the 70s that was the time of the geologist. It was a time that people were freaking out you know the mad max movies were coming out the end of the oil the all you know opex were were flexing their muscles and that was a time for the united states geologists to stand up and find all the oil fields they could yeah and and they they did a great job (laughs) they did a really good job very good job (laughs) they found reservoirs everywhere 
Yeah. And my dad was one of those guys. He worked for Shell, um, and then he went on his own in Argentina, and he's worked in Peru and Chile and Colombia, and he's you know he's found oil fields. That's what mm-hmm. that's what a geologist, exploration geologist, does. Now, what he followed up with that was, your day and age is a time of the engineer. We have found the fields. We have found the the oil in the ground. Mm-hmm. Now it's the engineer's job to take it out of the field, to take it out of the ground, to optimize to it. To optimize it. <laughs> and as I thought about that, you know, I remember thinking, oh, okay. And so maybe it's my father trying to convince me to go down the engineering path, which he succeeded. Retirement um, security. <laughs> true, because maybe he saw the the challenges of a geologist through the downturn of the '90s. But for me, the big thing was recognizing there's a difference between today and 30 years ago. Yes. And and I would fully agree with that statement that today is the day of the engineer. Yes. We are we know where the oil is all, and this goes for conventional as well as unconventional. Mm-hmm. We you know, we we know exactly where it is. We just have to figure out how to get it out. And we have historically been pretty poor at our performance. We when we get 20, 30% of the oil out of the ground, we pat ourselves on the back. Um, even from an environmental standpoint, it's kind of selfish to just walk away. Well, we're lucky if we get 20 or 30% oh, a yeah, lot exa- of the time. Exactly, exactly. And so, but that's where I would say EUR kind of started for me. And so okay. I really transferred. So I transferred universities. I came to Colorado School of Mines. Um, one reason was my father, his PhD is from Colorado School of Mines. Oh, cool. And I had done uh, high school in Boulder, Colorado. So I knew the area. Uh, and really what I ended up doing was uh, petroleum engineering. Yes. And that was right before, this is early 2000s, right before the oil prices really went up. Oh, lucky you. Pure just <laughs> luck, right? Just dumb luck. And I remember pretty much uh, taking some of those first petroleum engineering classes and just watching prices start creeping up. Mm-hmm. And all of us were like, we just hit the jackpot. Sweet. <laughs> and so that was kind of the, my mindset when I went from geology to engineering and I said, well, let's just go ahead and specialize and let's go petroleum engineering. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the beginning for me to think of how do we develop fields? How do we try to exploit it to, yeah. its, to its maximum potential? Um, after that, it was just pretty much luck. Um, so <laughs> I was able to land a job with ExxonMobil, yeah. uh, specifically their development company. And I got put on a amazing opportunity with uh, Angola and the uh, Kizamba projects. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I joined the first of what was 36 wells being drilled. We had two FPSOs, three fields, 36 wells were being drilled. I joined on the first one that we were drilling. Um, and these wells were 20 to $50 million a piece. Wow. And so that kind of like really kind of, you know, messes up your mind as far as expectations in the industry. Cause I thought a, a well that didn't produce 2000 barrels a day was a bad well. Mm-hmm. And the best well we saw there was a, uh, um, was a 40,000 barrel a day well. Whoa. And that was just a weird kind of opportunity to just get <laughs> unrealistic expectations in uh, working for big oil. Yeah. And what was actually interesting about that project was because we were offshore, um, we had these FPSOs, and we were forced from a regulatory aspect to implement enhanced oil recovery. Mm-hmm. So in these three fields, I, I ended up becoming one of the main engineers for one of them, um, but there's really four of us guys who were working on it. Uh, one of them was a water flood. Okay. One of them was an immiscible gas injection. Okay. And the other one was a miscible gas injection. So okay. that was kind of my beginning of recognizing how do engineers 
optimize the, the development of a field. Okay. And so I was able to work with great people, an amazing experience, go off to Angola, be part of the startup teams for two different FPSOs. And that, that to me was a game changer. At that time, what I didn't fully recognize, but we had some meetings where I was able to kind of get a preview to what was happening in the block next to us, which was run by Total. And at that time, Total was doing a pilot for polymer injection. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the first real polymer offshore pilots that had been implemented. And I was able to kind of see some of that from the Exxon side and be introduced to like the complexities of what falls into IOR or EOR, so improved versus yeah. enhanced oil recovery. Uh, but within those first two, three years that I was working there, I was able to see a polymer flood. I was able to see a water injection. I was able to see a gas injection for, miss for miscible conditions and then a gas injection for immiscible. That's really unique. And I had no idea that was happening. So that's where I would say it was dumb luck. So I guess the oil gods looked down upon me, you know, and they said, Elio, this is what your job is. And they I need lucky. to look down upon us now. <laughs> I'm still hoping I've got favor. In there. Um, after that, I, I then worked on the, uh, I got transferred to the Sockland project okay. where it was kind of optimizing the a water flood uh, okay. design. Um, and this was years before the implementation and, and uh, an amazing opportunity to use modern technologies, you know, simulation, um, you know, we had the best equipment, we had the best data, data was everywhere. Mm -hmm. like every well had like, for like the Angola stuff, we, every well had a multi-phase flow meter, pressure sensors, well testing, playground. It was just, you name it, we had it. But it wasn't the time, it wasn't really the time of big data. It I wasn't. This was mid, this was 2007 okay. to 2010 in that time frame. And I would say it was the offshore environment that had the budget that could support all these new sensors. Okay. And I got kind of put on a, uh, a side gig with the research company of Exxon looking at permanent downhole monitoring uh, tools. Mm -hmm. And so we were, that's where uh, uh, distributed temperature sensing kind of popped up. Yeah. So I had a unique opportunity of being some of the first people at Exxon looking at that and trying to make recommendations to see if you could apply that. That is How cool. would you apply that? <laughs> um, so anyway, it was just a unique opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so as far as going back, I guess, to the original question, how did I get here? One part was advice from my father. The second one was dumb luck. <laughs> dumb um, luck. Exxon kind of put me in a position and they exposed me to enhanced oil recovery. Mm -hmm. And they went together with the advice that I got from my father to the opportunities and the experience I got from Exxon. They kind of just merged perfectly together. And I said, okay, this is what reservoir engineers do. Yeah. They try to figure out how to get more oil out of the ground. So after Exxon, what so did you do? After Exxon, the, the sad reality with Exxon was it was a great company. They treated me great. I have zero complaints with Exxon. I just didn't want to live in Houston the rest of my life. Yeah, don't blame me for and that. <laughs> it's nothing against Houston. Right now they're getting flooded, I think. So oh my, my heart goes out to everyone in Houston. But uh, I went for a higher ground, uh, having you know been in Colorado before. Having literally done, the mountains. <laughs> literally the mountains. So I went as far up as I could. Mm -hmm. And so my wife and I, we had two kids at the time, and we just wanted our kids to play outside. Yeah. And so that was our reason for leaving Exxon it wasn't a, there was any problems mm -hmm. and we came to Colorado the excuse I used was to get a PhD in energy economics oh I figured that would be something that could help me be a better engineer mm -hmm. if you can make money uh, while yeah. making oil I think exactly that's what the objective is um, so I came to Colorado School of Mines again to do a PhD I got accepted to the PhD program and for some reason, I just had fun throwing my resume around places I had no business applying for. I do that sometimes. It, I, I thought it would be fun. And so I, I sent it off to two companies. Uh, one of them was a startup company. I would have been like the third or fourth employee. Okay. And then the other one was Certec. Yeah. And uh, Certec was across the street from mines. 
and it was it built off everything I had done at Exxon, mm -hmm. from the modeling to the international projects to just the just the development concept and it just really caught my attention and I met the guys uh, the guys at the time it was uh, Harry Circalo, Malcolm Pitts and uh, Con Wyatt and we hit it off great uh, they became you know excellent friends and or excellent mentors and great friends yes and that was a really weird position to be in because that's kind of where I, I can envision all those past quotes that people say about like standing on the shoulders of giants titans so, yeah <laughs> all of a sudden i've got these guys who have been doing it you are they've got a big name you know malcolm and harry both have distinguished pioneer awards for for enhanced oil recovery from spe and it was just a, a unique opportunity to learn from someone mm -hmm. when i got the job opportunity uh you know they wanted someone with twice my experience <laughs> but i think with uh, exxon and the other stuff that kind of came with experience they said hey you Welcome to the team. Dumb luck again. Dumb luck again. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of, uh, I stopped the PhD. I got the master's degree in economics. And then I said, let's just see where this goes. Yeah. And uh, was able to be involved with the actual de de design and implementation for chemical enhanced oil recovery projects yes. all over the world. And so the first few years I was here, it was between, uh, we did one development plan for a project in Wyoming. Uh, okay. We did, uh, it's like two or three for Canada. <laughs> uh, we worked in Indonesia. Uh, we had, uh, at one point in time, I think we had four or five projects going on in Colombia. I grew up in Argentina, and so I speak Spanish, and yeah. so that was kind of a unique opportunity to go to South America quite often. Uh, worked in Ecuador and Suriname, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, in 2013-14, one of the companies that we were working with in Colombia, they asked if I would go to uh, to work with them in Spain. Mm -hmm. That's where their headquarters were to kind of train up some of their simulation engineers on how to model enhance all recovery processes. And so I pr pretty much had a year in Spain, which is... That is cool. And Madrid is probably the, the greatest city, like, or one of the top places to be as a, I guess, yeah, just, just to have fun. Like to just, have that opportunity. Yeah. You don't see that much anymore. Oh, no. And so they, uh, they, they that company, they, you know, the company was SEPSA. They were excellent. They mm -hmm. treated me great. Um, wonderful opportunity and uh, just a wonderful time. I was able to uh, take my wife and my kids with me for a lot of the tra traveling. Oh, that's good. How so, old were the kids when they got to go? So I had two daughters at the time, and they were seven and eight. So you just, like, engulfed them in the culture. Yeah. and oh, so That's amazing. We, we had the opportunity to kind of – so really the way it worked out was two weeks on, two weeks off. Oh, and, that's awesome. Yeah, because <laughs> I still had projects that I worked with in other parts of the world. Yeah. So it was just a lot of travel, and the only way you can make that work with your family is just take them with you. So exactly. Take I'd them with you. I had to give up on first class or business class flights. and Oh, poor you. Poor me. I had to go economy, <laughs> but at least I had my family with me, so it was fun. <laughs> well, that's good. So now you reside in, uh, well, not really golden, up the hill, yeah, so, so to speak. Yeah, I'm in Evergreen. Yeah. But you do a lot of work with the school. You're still here at Surtech. Yes. So You're a commanding force to I, be reckoned with. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I have, uh, <laughs> haven't really proved myself for anything, but um, I hope down the road that we can make oil. Make oil? <laughs> somehow with enhanced oil recovery, because I think that's one of the problems of the oil, of the enhanced oil recovery industry is we, we're a lot of talk. Yes. And there's uh, not as much actions. And I think that's one of our, our weaknesses. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because what I have noticed is there's always a headline in one of the magazines that comes out uh, monthly. And there's always something about enhanced oil recovery. But when you're out in the field, unless someone has actually worked with it, they don't actually understand what it is. Everyone thinks in some capacity that enhanced recovery might just be a water flood 
maybe eventually some CO2, but can you take us through uh, the quick notes on what enhanced recovery is and the different sectors that are involved in it? So, yeah. Um, <laughs> as far as like the way that I would ex- describe enhanced oil recovery in the most basic form, it's an effort to get more of the oil that's under, you know, under the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think I have to say it that way because in the rocks or like in the poor throats is typically how conventional reservoirs are. And that's, that's you know, the oil migrated in there. Yes. And then we're trying to get that oil back out now. Yes. And it's extremely unlikely you're going to produce everything. You know, if you got a shovel, you could probably dig down and, you know, take one fourth grain off, you know, or one sand grain off at a time and get every... Dig bed. down like, with a shovel. It's not economic. <laughs> and I think that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, the other option is that maybe instead of leaving at... 20 or 30% recovery, maybe try to get up to 40, mm-hmm. maybe 40 or 50% recovery, depending on the conditions you're at. The, uh, the, the, the unconventional side is quite different. And this is where I think most people are just missing it. Mm-hmm. The rock is different. It's not a clastic or a carbonate. It's not something that the oil migrated into. It's what's coming. It's where the oil's coming from. It's the kitchen so it's and the, kitchen. the house. And so <laughs> that, that to me is one of my frustrations is I hear a lot of the EUR on unconventionals is people are forgetting that it's that the rock's different. Mm-hmm. So they, they keep referring to, you know... To oh, it well, as EOR. Yeah, as it, or it's not necessarily as EOR, but it's as a percentage of the oil in place. And it's like, well, what is the oil in place? Like, Oh, no, nobody this, can do OIPs with unconventionals. Yeah, and so, you know, they try to, try to play around and say, oh, we're going to do it as a function of recovery. Uh-huh. Well, but recovery has OIP built in that equation. Yes. So th- we, there's some something fundamentally different and so I guess I'll make that statement, but to go back to the original question, which was how do you go, how do you describe EUR in its most basic form? Mm-hmm. It's trying to do something in the reservoir that's not natural to get more oil out. Mm-hmm. And for me, really enhanced oil recovery requires another part to it, which is you have to have an injection production pair. Yes. So you have to be able to put something in and then somehow penetrate the matrix and from that point on get extra oil out correct and so you revitalize the matrix yes it's the the matrix is the key part and i think that's one of the issues with um people get you know you mentioned earlier about the stimulation and you know people talk about these huff and puff like i'll put some surfactants down or Mm -hmm. i'll do co2 or i'll do these you know hydrocarbon gas and yeah you'll get some more but you're just revitalizing the wellbore or the near wellbore region yes but you're not necessarily displacing any of the oil that's within the matrix from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to like perhaps imbibe a little bit more, get get a little bit more out of, you know, just scratch the surface. And you know, it might be economic, but it's not economic enough to compete with drilling new wells. And can you really do it on every single well that they've drilled? People I've, have gone nuts on spacing. Yes. Now there, there there's ways of doing it, but mm-hmm. that's that, I'd say that's a different topic of discussion. Yeah. Um, no one's cracked the nut yet. Yes. For enhanced oil recovery for unconventionals. And so I think that's kind of where I'll probably leave it for the unconventionals. Yes. Yeah. There's huge potential. There's huge opportunities. But for conventional EUR, um, we really try to introduce foreign agents. And those agents can be um, gas. It could be air. It could be nitrogen. It could be CO2. It could be uh, some foreign uh, combination of hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it could be pure carbon. You know, it could be like ethane. Or, yeah. or, or propane. There's been uh, pilots out there that have just been propane pilots that have been very successful. 
Or we could also do chemicals that have been added to a water flood. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what chemical enhanced oil recovery is. And that's your specialization. That's what we specialize in at Surtech. Mm-hmm. And it has been primarily focused on the implementation of chemical enhanced oil recovery. Mm-hmm. So why would you recommend someone to consider chemical enhanced oil recovery after a water flood? Well, the, the, it's all about the target, right? It's the objective is to get more oil out of the ground. So yes. there has to be a, some kind of big carrot at the end of the stick that mm-hmm. gets people excited, right? If, you've, if you're have if you at 50% recovery because you have some magical aquifer and everything's great. That's luck. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that's great that you got to that point. But EOR might not be your best candidate because you might pretty much be at the residual oil saturation conditions. Yes, correct. And so now if you have sufficient saturation, you have enough target oil to go after the the reason why one would um, recommend a p- chemical versus some other form of EUR it's 100% up to the reservoir. And okay. I think this is one of the things that's yeah, Certex our specialty is chemical. We claim it to be our our special we 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 went the chemical route because it's one of the most complicated forms of enhanced oil recovery. Mm-hmm. For gas EUR it's really miscibility is what you're trying to go after and so the laboratory studies are quite simplistic and mm-hmm. it really turns into the reservoir conditions. And so okay. If you have a source of gas, if you have a source of CO2, or you can get it from somewhere else, uh, it's pretty straightforward. And I'd say most competent reservoir engineers should be able to do a gas yeah. EUR project. Yeah. Uh, for chemical, it's not so much. Okay. For chemical, there's the, 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 the chemistry is needed, right? And that typically is a bad word for petroleum engineers or most people in the oil and gas industry. You know, we, the thought of they doing chemistry. They shy away from it. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's scary to think about this stuff. Um, <laughs> But if you understand it, you can identify key characteristics of the reservoir, the fluid and the rock, to help you identify that it's a good candidate for it. Yes. Because there have been plenty of chemical EURs that have been economically successful, that have been upscaled to a full field application, and they've made money, and they've made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, there's also been some horrible applications of chemical EUR in reservoirs that should have never been, which should have never been a candidate for EUR. They should have been screened out. They should have been screened out. And that's where I would say the, the real weakness of the reservoir engineers has been is that a lot of people don't have the experience. And so they might read one paper, they might read one concept and they'd say, well, this one concept's valid, mm-hmm. but there's so much more to that, that you know, it, it, it's, you know, chemical EUR is kind of scary for some people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, the, the, it sounds scary, honestly. Yeah. But there's companies up in Canada. Husky's been, a, I think, one of the poster childs for mm-hmm. extremely competent reservoir engineers who've been able to, time after time again, implement some form of a chemical EUR project. And yeah. Money. And, well, um, so to your point, people do shy away from it. And especially in, like, the lower 48, I would say that most people shy away from the anything enhanced recovery. Uh, there isn't much emphasis on going through the process to figure out if it will work regardless of its economics or not. They just assume it's not going to be economic. So for all these success stories we're seeing all over the world, everywhere, Canada, Mexico, uh, South America, China, you know, Middle <laughs> East, everything. Um, why do you think, do you think it's the shale revolution that sort of scared people away from it and just quicker, faster, stronger, or? Yeah, so it's, it's a combination of two things. One of them is the shale. Okay. Um, the shale took the United States by storm, right? It, it, all the attention, all the money went straight to the unconventionals. Bakken, 
you know, the Permian, the Eagleford, the mm-hmm. DJ Basin with the Niobrara, everything just moved so fast and people were making their money. Mm-hmm. And so life was good. Um, so it definitely took the attention away of people. But the truth is in the United States and North, not necessarily North America, in the United States, the attention was already kind of, or not the attention, the the mood or the flavor was kind of soured by the past. And this is one of the things I'm a big fan of is history. Like in the 80s, you mean? And this is 60s, 70s, Whoa. 70s, 80s. And so the I, I'll, I'll give you the high-level version. Um, there was a time in, you know, back in the day, 70s, 80s, uh, the United <laughs> States had fixed oil prices. Correct. And in those fixed oil prices, you had three tiers. You had tier one, tier two, tier three. And depending what type of a field development project you were, you get one tier versus the other. Okay. And if you know, and so pretty much what that meant was, um, if you're doing something easy, you'll get a lower tier price, and if you're doing something complicated, you get an upper tier price. So something easy isn't exploration; it's, it's infill. Just, yeah, it's just infill drilling, okay. or just doing the basics, right? Okay. Just improved oil recovery, or just standard development, where okay. you're just producing, and you're like, wait, this well's doing 20 barrels a day. The government looks at that and says, well, good job. You know, here you you get, I think at the time it was like, here you get twelve dollars a barrel. Okay. which is lower than what the world market, what the world price was. And they would then also put a hefty pro, uh, windfall profit tax on you of like 70%. Okay. Now, if you could convince the government that you were doing enhanced oil recovery, all of a sudden you're pretty much telling the government that you're much smarter than you're branching the average out. person. You're <laughs> branching out. And what the government then said would be, like, okay, well, I'll raise your price from like $13 to $17 mm-hmm. per barrel, which is closer to the world price at the time. And we'll reduce your taxes from 70% to like 30%. Mm-hmm. That's huge that's, in the world of any industry, right? Where that's, the a, that's a pivot point for you. That's a pivot point. And so a lot of the old engineers at the time and young engineers at that time, they, uh, they went for the economics. Yeah. So they play the we economics. We still go game. for the economics well, today. Well, but they, they went to not necessarily for the successful implementations. They were going to try to maximize the oil prices and the reduction in taxes. Okay. And so what that resulted in in the 70s and 80s was a lot of EUR projects that got implemented, but not all of them were, tech, you know, uh, they were technically successful yes. on a technology basis. But they still got the break. But they were economically successful. Okay. And so this is where, now fast forward 30 years, or look throughout the 20, you know, the 20, 30 years after that, all those young engineers who saw that, become the old engineers. They're the old engineers of today. Yes. And most of them are pretty much retiring it right now. But if you talk to some of these people, <laughs> it's funny. They have this mentality that EUR doesn't work. Yes. It was just a kind of a trick to get more money from the government. Yeah. And they were correct. That's that's how they played that game. Now, the problem is EUR can work if you find the proper application. Mm-hmm. And But you know, coupled with those people becoming the managers with the unconventional boom at, at that time mm-hmm. you can see how north america just really didn't really stand a chance yeah whereas a lot of the foreign company or foreign countries what they had was a you know they're maturing reservoirs are starting to get near the abandonment phase and they're yeah. saying well for you know we need to do something to kind of put some life back in there and so that's why we saw you know you see, you know, China, you see, you know, Canada, they had an excellent uh, royalty um, incentives program that yes. got them going. Um, but, you know, Mexico with Cantrell, that's a good nitrogen um, immiscible gas injection UR project, uh, as well as, you know, you know all, all around the world, a lot of the national oil companies or, or people not 
involved with the United States <laughs> were the ones who took that step because they had to. Yeah. They saw the, okay. they saw the benefit and they went after it. And mm -hmm. many of them have succeeded. And so right now I'd say China and Canada are kind of the poster childs for success. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's successful projects in South America uh, and, and all over the world that it's, it's kind of funny. The United States kind of gave up on the idea and we've been kind of watching the national oil companies to some extent become the leaders in a way like the pioneers almost become the pioneers and so it's kind of interesting to, to kind of watch it and you know uh, Surtec's been involved with all these companies we, oh, yeah. we, we've had this, this little niche and uh, it's been great for us <laughs> uh, and, and so it's just it's, it's weird but I think deep inside there's a, a big potential in the United States still well, that's actually a really good point because there are articles, I'm sure you've seen it, Wall Street's turning its back on shale, uh, private equity is having to renegotiate its exit strategies or really just scrap them and start over from the beginning. Everything's pointed towards the Permian. Where we have opportunity are some of these underappreciated basins. They've been slow and steady most of their uh, existence for us, like let's take the powder. But you'll see if something shiny takes your attention, everybody just turns and leaves. So does enhanced recovery have the potential to bring more popularity to some of those underappreciated basins that we see throughout the Rockies, Utah, potentially California? So one of the, so there's a, in the world of EUR, depending on who's presenting something for you, they always kind of grab the same little catchphrases. And they little, do, yeah, there's buzzwords. Stuff. But, but there, there's one little phrase that's commonly used in the oil and gas industry for EUR, and it's a Chinese proverb where it says, like, the best time, <laughs> Chinese to, proverb. The, the best time to plant a tree is, is 20 years ago. This, oh, yeah. The next best time is now. And so that's kind of the story of EUR. Mm -hmm. um, now, one of the problems with that is that there is a point in the in a mature reservoir where the economics just or the environment isn't favorable for economics mm -hmm. the economics for enhanced oil recovery are a function of oil saturation mm -hmm. the higher the oil saturation the, the the quicker you get your oil bank the quicker you get your oil the less time value of money is impacting those results mm -hmm. if you are in a heavily kind of a mature field that's producing 99 percent water cut it's going to be difficult for you to be able to have really favorable economics because it's going to take quite a bit of time to build an oil bank to be okay. able to produce it. And so that's one of the, the, the sad problems was that, yeah, 20 years ago, it was great to plant a tree. You know, now it would be great. But the sad reality, like 40 years ago was the time to plant it. Mm -hmm. And 20 years ago would have been kind of also a good time to do it. So if you don't take advantage of some of these fields, you're going to start getting plugged and abandoned. And because they're honestly, they're, they're just, washing out. So they're, they're washing out. The infrastructure is falling apart. Um, and we're leaving money in the ground because of it. Yeah, and, and it's it's tricky. Now, the one thing I will say about like with the Permian example you mentioned, the for the first time in the world of unconventionals, the infrastructure is really starting to show itself. Yeah. And we have all these reservoirs or all these wells that are <laughs> wine racked wells. <laughs> wine racked wells that you know what now is the time to do something with that. Yeah. Because yeah, they paid themselves off. They're there. Option A is to plug and abandon it, or option B is to try to implement some form of enhanced oil recovery. So you think there's there will be potential for enhanced oil recovery for unconventionals? Yes. Just not what's happening right now? Well, what's happening right now is a lot of people are trying to shove conventional EUR know-how oh, so into an unconventional... Was it round peg, square hole? Yes. Square peg, round hole? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And Yes, you might be able to scratch the surface, get a little bit more oil, 
but that's What's a little stimulation. bit more oil, though. Yeah. But, but, but that's a form of stimulation. Yeah, like, exactly. So the stuff you see people doing isn't really going into the matrix. It's just trying to scrape the, 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 the surface area of the fracture. Or mm -hmm. It's just it's, it's, not, it's not the answer. And there's been quite a few people who have been quite involved and are very well versed. And they, anyone who knows anything about EUR for the unconventionals, I think they all agree in saying we haven't cracked the nut yet. Yeah. The, the potential's there. Someone's going to figure it out. But it's easier to figure it out when you know the well bores are all there than if you have to drill the well bores and then also do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the environment is becoming more favorable for EUR for unconventionals. Um, hopefully someone, you know, and, and we're, we, we consider ourselves involved in that challenge also. We're, yeah. you know, Certec, we're doing research We're you know, we, we are evaluating and trying to figure out ways to crack that nut. And mm -hmm. if we crack that nut, you have lab access, you yeah. have the ability to really just hone it in and keep it in house, which is yeah. awesome. No, exactly. So crack that nut. Let's talk about that because back to my probably initial statements at this point of you, you are your niche you are probably one of a hundred people throughout the entire world that are true EOR focused. And that's something rather unique. So for the guys who got you started standing on the shoulders of Titans, what happens now? Are these going to be the guys that figure it out? Do you think it's going to be actual field application or is it going to happen in academia where it's all lab based? Yeah, so I guess one, one thing I, I haven't fully mentioned, I think you might have mentioned at the beginning, is that I do teach at Colorado School of Mines. Yeah, so you I'm, do. I'm in the petroleum engineering uh, faculty. He was my grad student. Uh, <laughs> ha you were like a partial advisor. <laughs> That's how I got um, my job. <laughs> so I, I guess this is where I become offensive and I start saying things that maybe a little bit more honest on my views of things, but... You can be honest. Yeah, you, yeah, can, yeah, yeah. you can drop names. Yeah. No, I'm not. Yeah, I, I won't drop names. There's uh, um, Now, the only names I will say is uh, the people who I highly respect. And one of the people I've been able to work with at Colorado School of Mines is Hassan Kazemi. Love him. One, he's a pioneer for EUR. He's a pioneer for a lot he's, of things. He is a, he, he is a, a, a great man. Mm -hmm. And he's very intelligent, very technical, um, ex the highest level of integrity that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of conversations with him. Uh, he has, you know, decades of experience at Marathon. He ran the labs there, and then he went into, the acad into academia. Didn't uh, he um, actually start our version of numerical simulation as well? He well, helped he, come up with equations he's for a, it. Yeah, so he, he's, a, he's an expert on EUR, <laughs> fractured reservoirs, <laughs> as well as um, numerical simulation. Mm -hmm. And he's just... He, He's the type of guy who does this stuff for fun. Like, yeah, yeah, he does actually. He, yeah, he enjoys the, the the stimulation of like the brain on solving problems and helping uh, younger generations. And so he's been a great mentor for me. Now, as far as solving the nut or, or, or cracking the nut or solving the problem of uh, EUR, and I've, I, as an academic person, because I do wear an academic hat, I don't think academia has done anything. Revolutionary. Yeah, so if you think about the problem, back in the 60s and 70s, which were really the heydays of EUR, that's mm -hmm. when Marathon and Exxon, who I would argue were the, the, the two big experts in enhanced oil recovery. They did a lot of research, a lot of work. Certec, um, as well as Car School of Mines, are really founded off of Marathon's past. Marathon yeah. used to have a research center in Littleton, Colorado, and a lot of the big names like Dr. Kazemi, mm -hmm. went from Marathon to Colorado School of Mines. Fred Potman, who was his boss, did the same thing. 
there's a lot of individuals who have helped build up Colorado School of Mines, mm-hmm. where Colorado School of Mines still has the Marathon Center of Reservoir Excellence. That's true, so yeah. It's, there's all these links in the history that most people don't know. But what happened when the oil prices collapsed in the 80s, all the way through the early 2000s, is major oil companies either downsized or completely shut down their research centers. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was one of the biggest problems of enhanced oil recovery, because instead of having people trying to solve the problem and showing how they solved it by producing incremental oil, you pretty much hand it off to the academic individuals who aren't necessarily interested in producing more oil. They're interested in writing more papers. They're interested in um, graduating more masters and PhD students, mm-hmm. right? And publishing more, you know, or, and getting, and I don't know, it sounds horrible, but they just like to hear their own voice. <laughs> so like, and, I, and I say that as a, as a person who teaches at the university. Oh, I'm one of those people too. <laughs> I'm running a podcast. <laughs> but they have, if you look at their track record, there's nothing. And, and it's, it's, the, it's the most frustrating thing to be in the world of EUR and to look at the world of, of, of academia mm-hmm. and see if you guys only produced one barrel of oil per student you would graduate, we would be solving the world's energy crisis. And, and, we, and we're not. It's we, really sad to put it that way, but it's probably true. <laughs> we, have, we have so many people coming out into the industry who claim to be a doctor or a, you know, a, doc, you know, a doctor or a master's degree in EUR who have never produced an incremental barrel due to EUR. And so that's my. And they're claiming, they're claiming that is their resume claim to fame? Well, they're, what they're doing is they're writing papers. Oh, okay, And, and okay. so one of the sad realities, and this is from my, from my advisor from Certec, from, from uh, Harry Cercalo, um, I remember talking to him about some of the new papers being published, mm-hmm. and it was, fr- it, was sad to, it, was, it, was, it was fun to talk to him, but you could see the frustration in his voice when he said, this paper is the exact same research that we did in the 60s or the 70s. Yeah, it's we we have people just reinventing the wheel, and they're not researching, they're not studying the past. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, just oh, let's try this one again. Same idea, it's repeating same history. Idea. And, and so my frustration with academia is, I don't think they've solved the problem. Okay. And I think they could be part of the solution, but the industry has relied too much on academia to mm-hmm. solve the problem. Yeah. And I think it's time where we have to get more stuff in the field. We have to move away from the laboratories. The laboratory is great for you are. It gives you some important parameters but at the end of the day geology is what kills us yeah and the only way to learn and deal with geology is going more and more into the field so we're you're really pushing for the interdisciplinary approach yeah so we so on our so for certec you know we're a small company and we are the only way we survive is a team up with the technical team or asset team Mm -hmm. for different companies yeah and so we go we work with them and they help us understand the geologic uncertainty Mm mm-hmm and we help them understand that you are uncertainty. Okay. And the idea is that if we work together, we have higher probability of success. Yes. And for us, the key thing is economics. You cannot, like, like here's one of the sad things. Like, if you look at some of the formulations that people have come up with, if you assume that their formulation is going to be tied for the best performance of EUR that anyone's ever seen, they're still in the range of like $80 per incremental barrel. And that's not including facilities or some of like the... It's just uh, not economic. It's not economic. And so we have individuals coming up with stuff 
that's just not economic. Yeah. And they present this to the industry, and everyone's kind of giggling at it. They look at it and they say, like, is this yeah, for they, real? Yeah, that's why the bad name is out, still out there. Yeah, so, so you know, the, the big misconnect, and I remember years ago, I was, you know, afterwards, after leaving Exxon, I actually went back to Exxon to, to meet with their research team oh, at CERTEC. Cool. It was kind of funny um, to go back <laughs> as a consultant rather than a... Um, Feels good, right? Yeah, I, I was like, oh, I used to walk these halls, you know, like... <laughs> Um, I kept my past hidden from them, or not, it's all in my, it's all, all in my resume. But when they they were very honest, and, and, and even their website, they state something. This is why I'm sharing uh, with them. They say the economics is the struggle yeah. for EUR. And that has always been the case, especially if you have the people designing the EUR who aren't familiar or aware with economics. Yes. And so, what and you most most researchers are not, yeah, well, and that's just reality. I, I saw it all the time yeah. as a student. And and maybe I'm biased because my master's degree is in economics, and I teach oh, economics yeah, that's at the totally university. What it is. <laughs> but it's it's the one language that everyone speaks. Yes. And unfortunately, a lot of extremely technical people who are extremely intelligent. Mm-hmm. I, I, my hat goes off to all the academic people out there who are technical experts and who yeah. have done a lot of great work. But oftentimes, they don't sit there and they don't look at the dollars. Correct. That someone has to put in the ground to make that technology to work. get it out of the ground. And so that that to me is where I think EUR needs to have kind of this big awakening, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden we have to say, look, the objective is not to get every single barrel out of the ground. Yeah. The objective is to make money by getting barrels of oil out of the ground. So mm-hmm. we might leave forty percent or fifty percent of the oil on the ground, but if we get an extra ten percent, that's that's good. Yeah. Well, okay, so I know your history pretty well, but one thing, and one thing I will say about you is you have, I think you've kind of been an entrepreneur since probably high school. <laughs> you, you've always had that mentality of how to, you know, not just come in and perform your job, but how to excel past your job. And you've done a very good job at earning your seat at the table in several capacities. So for the times that we're in and for the new entrepreneurs that are, trying to find, I guess, uh, opportunity within volatility. Can you talk to us a bit about how you go through the process or how you went through the process of earning your seat at the table? Because it matters in this industry. Track yeah, record, no. age, everything. Yeah, so the past five years as I've taught at the university, I've seen it. I saw the downturn, right? Yeah, I, I saw this, love I, it. I saw students going from 100% job placement with students to much lower. Much lower. Much, much lower. <laughs> And I saw students have their offers retracted. I saw students kind of have like their dreams kind of shattered as they left the oil industry to go to other places. And so I've been giving this advice quite often to them, mm-hmm. which is um, which is kind of like, how do, how do you get it? For me, it's not necessarily a seat at the table. It's like, how do you get your foot in the door? Okay, so um, start with the foot in the door then. Uh, with the foot in the door, the, the honest truth is, you, I mean, this, this, is from, this is my opinion, but it's difficult to look at someone else's life and be able to say, I'm going to do what that person did. <laughs> because... And yet we have mentors. And yet we have mentors. <laughs> and But what we try to do is we try to f- see something that worked for someone, and we sit, we have this like game plan. I'm just going to follow that. Yeah. And the problem is there's probably a million other people trying to follow that exact game plan. And, you know, and th- th- that's one reason why we, you know, everyone reads about you know Warren Buffett, but not everyone's turning into Warren Buffett. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Uh, Nobody's unfor- willing yeah. to put in the work, and he put in the work. Yeah, but he put in the work early on yes before everybody recognized just how great that you know that 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 career path could be on my world it's 
if okay, so if you can't necessarily look at individuals and say, I want to be just like you, I'm going to try to follow your path. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe in that. I think the second you you think that way, you've given up entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. And what I think you have to do is you have to have a realistic view of the industry. You have to have a realistic view of yourself mm-hmm. and recognize where these opportunities stand. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, what I've been telling students is, like, for, I'm 38 years old. So yeah. I'm, 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 well, you're you just know, throwing that out there. Put, put a fork in me, I'm done. Um, got two more years before, no, just joking. Two more years before <laughs> retirement. <laughs> um, but the, I have always been the youngest guy in every room I've been in. Mm-hmm. And just recently has that kind of switched a little bit. And it's not fully switched. It's because you hired me. <laughs> yeah, so, so as you come in, you, you know, you've, you've changed all of that. But it's been interesting to be amongst these people who had decades more of experience than I had, mm-hmm. who were smarter, um, just better. Yeah. <laughs> right? These guys had the, the finances, they had the money, they had everything you could ask for. And they, they could were just, do everything by hand. Yeah. And that is what I saw was their weakness. Hmm. was that they did everything by hand. Okay, yes, I agree with that. <laughs> and so my big thing was, and I'm not a big computer guy. I, I, I'm not like an expert in anything. I, I feel very confident with numerical simulation, but yeah. that, that was kind of what I grabbed onto. When I went to Exxon, that was what a lot of my time was spent, was doing numerical simulation mm-hmm. and getting more and more, I would say, intimate with the computer mm-hmm. and being able to understand the physics through the modeling process rather than having 20, 30 years of experience in the field doing it by hand. Mm-hmm. Now, the, for me, what, what worked really nice, quite nicely was being able to have someone that I was closely working with who did do it by hand and knew the physics very intimately yes. and the whole expertise side of the technology. And then I could work with them on the modeling. Mm-hmm. And so that to me has been what my generation and really anyone who's come after You've got to capitalize on that. You have to recognize that it's a digital age. Yeah. The classes that I teach at Colorado School of Mines is, uh, so I teach economics and I teach the data analytics class. So you think we're moving towards a tech-based industry? Not necessarily like a tech-based industry, but we have to recognize that to be able to really catch up to what our predecessors Mm -hmm. had as far as technical knowledge, we have to use technology to help us. Okay. And so I'm not this person who's saying t- robots are going to take over. But what I can tell you they is might. that <laughs> there's going to be an engineer behind the computer. Behind the robot. And if that engineer is tech is very capable with a specialty, like like I feel very comfortable with enhanced oil recovery, mm-hmm. I could do the job of multiple engineers who don't have that same level of expertise. Correct but perhaps that tech, that same level of computer skill sets. Yeah. So if you couple them together, you have to have an expertise, but the computer in the digital age, it's not going away. No. Right? And, 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 and it's I, just going to continue. It's going to continue. So what we need to do is use it to our advantage to accelerate the learning process. Mm-hmm. We have to. So for us, uh, one of the things we're doing at CERTEC is we're building a database of all the world's EUR projects. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, uh, I was in, in South America a couple months ago, and these people, and you know, the, the client was asking me about, well, hey, we had this one field, here's some properties. Do you think it might be a good candidate for thermal? I'm not an expert at thermal EUR. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is that if, since I have access to all the data, so we had about six, 700 thermal projects that have been implemented, I just pulled all the data up right in front of them. And I said, well, let's just see what the, what the average properties are yeah. for the thermal projects that have been implemented, and let's compare that to yours. 
Just in the meeting? Just in the meeting. That's it, awesome. It, that to me is what... That's tangible. That's tangible. And that's analytics. You know, and, and I'm not a big fan of the like statistical models like we're going to take over everything and we don't need petroleum engineers. I'm not that guy. No. What I am saying is that the petroleum engineer who understands the analytical tools mm-hmm. and has access to the data that all of our predecessors had done a lot of hard work to get, you couple those together and you have a really powerful weapon. Mm-hmm. And that weapon helps not only... Um, other clients and other companies to kind of improve their skill sets in EUR, but you get to learn a lot. You have all this information at your fingertips, mm-hmm. and very few people have actually taken advantage of that. So that, that, that to me is one of the things that young engineers have to recognize is mm-hmm. you have to figure out your niche. You have to figure out something that's going to make you unique compared to everybody else. For me, it was EUR. Mm-hmm. And the weird part is I don't see that many new young faces in EUR. All the guys like No, not at all. When I go to these EUR conferences, it's I, I, I've... If, oh no, are they dying off? Oh no. <laughs> no, they're not dying off. Right? You know, knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> I don't want anyone to die off. But uh, we are recognizing that more and more people are retiring. Yes. Or they're getting closer to retirement. Or the companies that were sponsoring them are changing their mindset on EUR and therefore kind of forcing them into early retirement. Interesting. And so it's just that I, I, I believe there's a huge opportunity for young engineers to go into EUR. And it's exactly what my father told me as a, as a, when I was younger. This is the time of the engineer. Yeah. So figure out the optimization. Figure it out. Like it's, there's enough knowledge out there and data that we can take advantage of to accelerate the learning process mm-hmm. and really start contributing, you know, to get more oil out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So in industry, you ha- there's typically a five year mark um, in most companies, and that's kind of the time when people start listening to you. But since we're seeing layoffs, it's also the time, if you are somewhere between that three to five mark, if you're just graduating, you are not immune to the bottom line being red. And we are seeing a lot of volatility with layoffs. We're seeing uh, longer times to find new jobs. Um, What recommendations do you have to those that might be experiencing some of that uncertainty uh, or or might just be unemployed period right now and kind of looking around? Because not everybody has access to just jump onto data analytics. Some some people's brains don't think that way. No. So what can they do to sort of stabilize during the uncertainty since you've seen the downturns? Yeah, so you know you have a couple options on what to do, and I'll I'll, I'll just I mean lay should them out. they just leave industry at this point? Well, I uh, I mean honestly. Well, let, maybe let's set it this way. I remember when I was a petroleum engineer at Colorado School of Mines, all of my buddies were one way or the other related to somebody in the oil and gas industry. That was, yeah. the, that was before oil prices went up. All of our fathers or friends. There was some nepotism. It, it, it was nepotism. is all it was. And so we had these guys from the Middle East. We had guys from South America. We had guys from North America who had been pumpers. It, it, all of us, one way or the other, had a link to the oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. It was when oil prices kind of exceeded $80 a barrel. I love where that. all of a sudden it was oh, I can become really, really, really rich. Yeah. And so we had we started attracting individuals who weren't necessarily going to petroleum engineering or the oil and gas industry because they weren't smart enough to do anything else. <laughs> um, they were following the money. They were following the money. And that to me was a, a major correction. That is a major correction the industry needs is we need to be realistic. Yes, the oil industry is huge. There's money. There's money in every industry. Mm-hmm. You just got to be good enough to, to be able to play the game. What I would say to young people is, you know, you can go for more school. I don't know if that's going to help you. I don't know I, if that helps. I, I, you I, need, I honestly you don't think cred. it does. You need street cred. Yeah. And I, I don't think the academ- academia has really justified their worth 
um, the past few years. They, they just keep issuing new students. And remember, I'm wearing a hat from academia, mm-hmm. and I'm a little bit concerned that you know, I see the students who can't get jobs. Yeah. The one thing that I have seen time and time again work is young engineers finding someone, because remember, there's like a 20-year age gap. Oh, yeah, we have from the, huge. From 86 to like 2002. Huge we, educational gaps. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll even just the age gap, because there's like, right now, there's like pretty much no one in their 50s in the oil and gas industry. So like yeah, late 40s or 40s to 50s, there, there's a very few people in the industry in that age group. We have people in their 60s who are all kind of looking at retirement. Yeah. And they, or they're going to die at their desk. <laughs> or, or they're going to die at their desk. Um, but those individuals are the ones who hold the answer. Yeah, that's and true. And they're nice people. They're normal oh. people. They're some of the greatest people out there. And all they need is a young person to find them and say, I want Look, to learn. I'm here to learn. I don't care about the money. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, if you can show some form of humility and say, look, I can get my hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of the young people have this mentality of like, well, I'm going to sit behind a computer and I'll model and I'll code and I'll blow everyone's mind up. And it's, well, that yeah, was the time during the, gooder, the better times, the yeah, gooder the times, times, the better times. You have to do that. You have to know the computers, right? Yeah. It's 2019 for crying out loud. <laughs> but there's no substitute to actually putting your work boots on and going out to the field and, and, and just figuring getting, it out. Figuring it out. And that's, to me, the big generational gap that we have. We have an older generation who is just tough. Mm-hmm. They're tough individual, tough guys, tough ladies, tough, you know, you name it. They just need, they want someone to show that they're also tough. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it'll be just like how Surtec treated me. I came yeah. in and I met Harry, Khan, Malcolm, and they, op- they, they opened up their arms and said, come on in. Yeah. And I can still remember Harry pretty much being, you know, saying, here, you're going to do this job, and uh, I'm going to offload all this information on you, and I'll give you everything you need, but... Figure it out. You're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was one of the greatest experiences that I've ever had, was when, uh, when pretty much Surtec said, look, we're just going to offload as much knowledge as we can on you, mm-hmm. so do your best. Yeah. And, yeah, now it's been, you know, you know nine, almost ten years practically and uh and i look back and it's yeah yeah at first it was kind of scary right Uh, yeah (laughs) but they saw that i was willing to take that effort and so i think that's the the real advice to give to some of these young people is look first you know there's an old bumper sticker i remember seeing said like when all when all else fails lower your standards (laughs) so maybe what we need to do is like lower our expectations for this like six-figure amazing salary Mm -hmm. right and it's not to say it's not going to come. It just says, get your foot in the door before you start demanding, like, demanding it. So show yeah. you, show your worth. The money's there. Yeah. Once you show that that's what you're worth, people will pay you what you're worth. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. So that's. What about from a managerial standpoint? Because a good manager can elevate a team and they can allow, you know, leaders under them to excel into leadership roles, but a bad manager or someone who is, uncomfortable with communication can can ruin an entire team and honestly we good people out of industry so from your background and having managed as many people as you do here what is sort of what is that secret sauce that you've kind of realized that you would uh you would bestow upon the managers listening Oh, I, so first a big disclaimer. It's like warning for everyone. Oh, oh no. Um, I'm not, I'm at the beginning of this process. <laughs> and so what I've had, 
I would say the university was kind of a nice, unique opportunity to kind of a, a, a batting cage environment okay. for manage for management because I was dealing with people in their early twenties, uh, very competent, but you had stubborn. to really <laughs> well, I'm not stubborn, but you really had to communicate. It it what it taught me was the importance of communication. Okay, because if I didn't communicate clearly, and I my whole life I thought I communicated clearly, and I, I've if I've learned anything, I'm horrible at communicating. Really? <laughs> but it's a uh, that's kind of one of those weaknesses that I've at the university was help was able to kind of help me understand was it was I made a lot of assumptions and so mm-hmm. if I can communicate clearly for students, they can recreate or I can teach them what I want them to learn. Yes. And it's not necessarily spoon feeding. Like giving people yeah. answers never the there's never the answer. And sometimes um, there isn't an answer. Yeah, but if you can show them how to think critically mm-hmm. and how to apply principles, then all of a sudden you're creating an engineer, right? Yeah. We don't want techs, we want engineers. We want a problem solver. We want a problem solver. And now my view, and this is from having seen several different managers, um, and what my efforts are for, at, I'm at the beginning of this road, mm-hmm. and I hope I can succeed. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I fail, maybe people can say, oh, okay, well, good, he told me exactly what he if did. If you and, fail, we'll have a second podcast. <laughs> we'll have a second podcast on exactly why this game plan failed, but from the managers that I've seen and my current efforts with the, with the employees that I work with at Surtech, um, it's communication. Okay. And there's two parts of communication. One is clearly define your expectations to help them understand what you expect them to do. KPIs. What, yep, KPIs. And then the other one is vision. If you can show people to some extent what you can see in your dreams, mm-hmm. I think it's more likely for them to get on board. Yeah. And they buy into it. Yeah, because you know, I'll, I'll here, here's what I'll, here's what I will say because there's really. The competitive advantage that I feel that I have in the world of enhanced solar recovery is you can't buy experience. Yeah, that's so true. So anyone listening to this, what they can say is, okay, well, I want to become an EORX expert, and I'm going to go buy four books, and I'm going to do this. If someone does that, please tweet us. <laughs> please, and let, and let us know how it goes. <laughs> but what I will say is the, the only way that you learn enhanced solar recovery is by doing it. You can go to the lab, and you can learn how to do it in the lab, mm-hmm. and that's great. But the way you make money and the way you really succeed is by doing it in the field. Mm -hmm. And that is something that has to be done in order to learn a UR. And that's where I feel that the past, you know, since the Exxon days, that's what we were doing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't always chemical. It wasn't always gas. But it was one or the other. Right? And right now we're in the process of doing a a fire flood. So we're also doing thermal recoveries. Yeah. And it's it's so much better easier to learn when you're doing it mm-hmm. and you're like okay i hope this works um yeah. <laughs> the first time that's kind of what you have in your mind right it's like i hope this works but sometimes after, it's what i always have in my mind <laughs> when you get to like the fifth or sixth time all of a sudden you're like there's this level of confidence where you say this is going to work yes and so at, at, you know, at the end of the day what eur is it's it's unique mm-hmm. you have to work to get to the level where you can actually make money off of it mm-hmm. and so you need to be a champion or have champions that to me is the vision you have to give to people mm-hmm. is that if you can show look we're in a unique position we have zero competition yeah like, it's it's the weirdest thing like, well don't say that now you're gonna get competition bring, but that's bring it. bring it <laughs> is that what you do <laughs> i'd say give me a call send me an email and uh i'll be happy to work with you yeah because that's exactly one of the things we do on the, the consulting side is we help yeah. people to train them up to get to that level mm-hmm. and we have been the the subsurface technical arm for companies 
We have been the kind of uh, Jiminy Cricket that's, that sits on someone's shoulders and say, yep, yep, you're doing that right. Oh, <laughs> Good angel, that. bad angel. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, EUR, a, a successful EUR application, mm-hmm. regardless if I'm involved in it, helps me. Yeah. So I want everybody to succeed at EUR. We have competitors out there. I wish them nothing but the best. Yeah. I want them to go out and succeed because every client that they can educate and have them do something in the field will lift the whole industry together. And mm-hmm. so, the, so when it gets to no competition, you know, there's you know there's some bickering here and there between companies, but the yeah. honest truth is, it's it's nothing. Yeah. The, the the prize is so big that every one, one success is a success for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I typically don't feel that there's people you know, talking bad about each other at EOR conferences. No. Yeah, and so... It's such a small team. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and we all know each other. There's there's guys from some of these uh, competitive, supposedly competitors that I'm on technical committees for SPE with. I yeah. see them, I talk to them. Um, we're friends. It, yeah. It's like you just become friends and you wish them the best. You come, you're colleagues more yeah. than anything. Well, I know how busy you are. So take us through your day, or at least a day in the life of Elio, from 12 a.m. to 11.59 p.m., what is unique about your schedule? How do you stay organized? How do you stay productive? Because that is something that we can easily go down a rabbit hole and not everyone has mastered that. So can you take us through your schedule and how you handle fires, all of it? Okay, so as far as, <laughs> you know, it's, it's- Lots of plates. <laughs> yeah, as I feel like there's fires underneath me right now, but my my, my thing is, well, here I'll just walk you through it. So. Uh, I typically wake up around 5.30 or 6 or so. Okay. And my thing is to work out in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And so I'll actually work out with my wife. Oh, fun. Um, she's actually a Zumba instructor. Oh. So she's into I, like fitness. I need to hang out with her. <laughs> <laughs> she's into fitness. And so it's fun to work out with her. Yeah. It's kind of a way that we have, we start our days together. Um, the, you know, so we'll have breakfast together and then I'll come to, to work. But no coffee. No coffee. <laughs> I, I, I don't drink coffee. don't drink tea. <laughs> don't drink soda. Um, but what my wife and I will, so that's kind of how I start my day, right? Yeah. And so I, with my wife. Kind of centers you. It, it centers me. It, 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 it helps me wake up. Yeah. Where working out, I think, is, is necessary. Um, depending if I'm at the university or at Surtech or with some client somewhere else, uh, it's pretty much working with the team. Yeah. And I think that's the key part is we're so far beyond Captain America days. You know, What's the, a Captain America day? It's like the one man show. It's like the, oh, the Superman okay. approach where okay. it's one guy can do it all. Like it, oh, no, that's not possible. <laughs> the, that's an unrealistic uh, environment. So, you know, at, at Surtech, I've got, you know, a handful of young people I work with. And mm-hmm. I still got Con and Malcolm that I work very closely with. Yeah. And we have this opportunity to, um, to kind of tackle problems together. Mm-hmm. And so this is where the communication comes in. Yeah. Is you have to have good communication. You have to have some type of a project management approach to things. And I I, I consider myself someone who writes as many reports as anyone else. I do simulations. Mm-hmm. And so we all do it together. So I don't, I don't think the young guys or the old guys are immune to doing technical work. Yeah. And that's one thing that makes us kind of perhaps a little unique because I remember being in other bigger companies where at certain threshold of being a manager it just means you're meetings all day delegating <laughs> and you're delegating and so for me that's not necessarily what I want um, I also have kind of a, a good setup at the university where I've got TAs mm-hmm. who I, I try my best to work closely with and sometimes it works great sometimes <laughs> not so much but we're trying um, things I typically like to do midday are I like, I like to go for a run yeah so right next to here in Golden there's uh, Table Mountain 
uh, or along the creek. I like to go for a jog. That's more for thinking yeah. than for anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that when I'm jogging or just going out doing some form of exercise, I can think about the challenges of the day or the problems that we're working through. Um, and then my afternoon is kind of acting on those, trying okay. to see how to, um, to go about it. But things that we don't do very much, I don't think we have many meetings. Yeah, uh, we no, y'all have, like, have. We have informal next to meetings, none. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, we have we have meetings with clients, but of internally course. we have a couple meetings a week. But the big thing is to really tackle the technical work, and everyone, it's all hands on deck. Um, there is no threshold where you don't work, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? There's no like, golden throne, um, and then so I, I typically will end around oh, let's say five five thirty. Okay, and. Uh, go back home and I typically kind of hang out with my kids. That's kind of like my social network is my <laughs> wife and my kids. And, you know, it's my kids. It is have, the truth. <laughs> and, and, and it works for me. Yeah. Um, when we were living in, or working in Spain, doing those two weeks on, two weeks off, uh, my wife home, uh, homeschooled our kids, our two daughters at the time. We have four kids now. Um, but my, my wife homeschools our kids. Mm -hmm. And so that gives us a kind of a unique opportunity to either have them join me for part of a business meeting either come before yeah. or go after or uh, we can go for extended periods um uh, just on, on trips together like my older two daughters are heavy are heavily into dance oh so now good they're more, their schedule are a so they're fixed. following mom they're following mom and uh but at, at the end of the day that's where i would find a lot of my social environment would be with my with my with my wife my kids mm -hmm. um i often will you know, if I have a minute, I'll still write reports at night. I'll, I find I'm, I'm not one of those guys who say you have to keep everything separate. Mm -hmm. My work and play are all intermingled. So work-life integration, not balance. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's and then my wife and I and, and with the kids, we'll do some crazy trips here and there. And yeah. so we'll <laughs> run off for either a weekend or we'll go for a whole week mm -hmm. with, it, with just my wife and I or just the family. Um, sailing has been kind of one of our little escapes from the world and uh, going to the Amazon that's is cool another one so but it's just it's a it works for us mm -hmm. I think it, it's a system that we've had for quite some time but we love to travel um, I think we're at the point where we love to travel places that we love <laughs> and so we find ourselves going to certain types of trips that's cool are you a reader I'm not a reader. You're not I am a reader. The yeah, my brother and my father are like diehard readers. Um, they're the guys you find at like Barnes and Noble. Oh wow. <laughs> um, the uh, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> although I, I think they, they would. Uh, I I listen to podcasts to be honest. Yay. So I listen to podcasts as I drive. I I like to read nonfiction perhaps either articles, but not, I don't read books. I don't mm -hmm. read fiction books, but I will read history mm -hmm. and I just read random stuff. That's awesome though. And so it's, I, yeah, I, it's, I just, I enjoy it. Yeah. It's kind of fun. And so we'll see. What is a book, podcast, or other resource you would recommend, but we know you're not a book person. So what is a, another podcast you would recommend? Yeah. So my, my big thing is like, for example, even just understanding the history of enhanced oil recovery. Mm -hmm. I think understanding the past is critical to understanding today. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a big fan of history podcasts. Yeah. Just in general. And so the one that I thoroughly enjoy is Hardcore History. Hardcore History. Hardcore History. Um, Weekly, monthly. Uh, it's, a, it's a guy named Dan Carlin, I believe is his name. Okay. Um, and he just uh, does a phenomenal job discussing all parts of history from from back to the persian days to really? the romans to world war one world war two and it's 
it's interesting to hear that perspective. Um, or it, it's fun to learn history. Yes. Because as you travel a lot, because even with work, I find myself traveling all, all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I've been able to visit and actually not, it's not like you're not visiting somewhere to just stand there and look in front of a building and be like, wow, that building. You actually travel to go work with someone. Yes. So you get invited to the dinners. You get invited to the meetings. You become friends with the people and the cultures. And that's what I find so enjoyable about, about history. Mm-hmm. And so the more I've got to see of the world, the more of the cultures I got to learn, that's where these podcasts or the, the, these historical kind of references become more alive to me is I start seeing why we are in the way we are. Mm-hmm. And it's, this, it's, this, it's my view with Enhanced Oil Recovery. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, back in the day, it was really Marathon and, and, and Exxon. Those were the two big guys. And I'm probably offending some people from Shell who they're like, oh, no, 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 we were there. <laughs> That's but, fine. <laughs> yeah, but, but you can, you can uh, and Shell was there, and Shell yeah. has been involved. I'm not, I'm not taking any credit away from them. But you start seeing trends. You see who's, mm-hmm. who are the big names today and where they came from. Mm-hmm. And when you see where they came from, you can also understand why they do the way they do the things. Like, for example, one of the, so I won't give names out, but one of the big names in the world of chemical enhanced oil recovery, um, they came from a major oil company yeah. who did not value economics. Oh. And you have to keep in mind that the major oil companies think of economics in a very different way. And this is from my experience yeah, with yeah, Exxon. Yeah, they do. They're into booking reserves. Mm-hmm. They're playing the reserves game because that's what reserves replacements replace that that's how they make their stock price. That's how you get your stock price, yeah. Yeah. And so they play a very different game where booking reserves is what's important, not necessarily making the most economic oil. Mm -hmm. And so you can see how these big names from who they came and where they learned from, getting the oil was a top priority. It wasn't making money. Mm -hmm. And so now when you try to apply that formula to a private or a national oil company, yes. You can start seeing the misconnect. Okay. And so to me, this is where history is so important because you got to understand where people are coming from mm-hmm. to be able to understand what is a recommendation because no one in the chemical enhanced oil recovery industry are trying to hurt anyone. No, not like at I, all. Yeah, so I, I don't think any of these individuals who might not necessarily value economics the way that I value it, um, I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're trying to <laughs> hurt anyone, right? But sometimes if you can't make economic oil, you're not really solving the problem. Correct. So if it, Correct. If it costs you $100 to cr- produce a barrel that you can sell for $60, there's something majorly missing there. So go back to history. So go back to history. You can see where people, where companies have come from, and you can see, I guess at the end of the day, you really see what recommendation or what work style can function better with your company. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe the major oil companies play the same game as the as the national oil companies okay or the or the private independent companies yeah and for some reason people have often looked to them as the the saviors of of the oil industry Mm -hmm. and in the past they've been great and in the currently they're yeah all the major oil companies my hat goes off to um i wouldn't be where i'm at with if i didn't have the experience with exxon Mm -hmm. so i I want them to succeed i still got some exxon stock so oh you really want them to succeed (laughs) i really want them to succeed (laughs) Um, but it's that to me is history mm-hmm. is everyone's got a history everyone has a story and you can't really understand them until then so that's where I'd go with that podcast and why I like it yeah well Elio thank you so much for joining us today you've definitely brought so much value and I can guarantee you you are you've sent some heads spinning so be prepared for some follow-up questions Uh-oh. but thank you I appreciate it so much no, well thank you for this opportunity <laughs> all right guys what did you think about Elio's perspective 
It is so important to be humble, to look for opportunity, and to work in your business as well as on your business. I hope you found as much value from his perspective as I did today. Anyway, if you have thoughts or questions for Elio, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Let me know. We will be sure to circle back here with Elio soon. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.